Forgive the absence of our usual intro music. This is the Spectator Books podcast, as usual, but we're having an innovation, which is, for the first time, we're in the presence not only of an author, but of a live piano. It's a live author and a, well, whatever pianos are. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking to Paul Kildare about his brilliant new book, Chopin's Piano, A Journey Through Romanticism, and Paul, along the way, will hopefully be using this piano to illustrate some of his points. Pick up the story, and you know, with Chopin about 36, and the, you know, acquiring of this piano you described in Mallorca. How different would the piano have been to the one you're sitting in front of now? Because that seems to be a big part of the story. It is. The big part of the story is the way that pianos changed over the course of the 19th century, as well as the way people played them and the music being written for them. So the piano that Chopin had in Mallorca in the winter of 38-39, uh, 1838-39, was only about six and a half octaves, so all this space at the top of this piano, etc., wouldn't have been on it. It was actually probably just single strung, so quite a... quite quiet in the, in, the, in the sound that it made. The temperament, the way that the physics, if you like, of tuning a piano was decided would have been completely different from the temperament of this piano. And so the sound of some of the preludes would have been um, very, very different from how we hear them today. So he was, he was working with a, a very primitive instrument made by a local craftsman. It was made by a single man. Yes, yeah. And, and even in this stage, uh, in big factories in Paris and in London, Broadwood in London, piano making had become become industrialised. It was quite a big process and there were lots of people involved in the making of it. But this one is almost certainly made by just a local craftsman, possibly a carpenter, because it's actually a very beautiful looking instrument. But it's still sort of early days in, in, in the piano history, in the history of the piano. And and from what we know of descriptions of the piano, it was, it was relatively primitive. Well, can we set the scene for his introduction to this piano? You have him travelling to Mallorca with George Sand, his lover, and they, you know, he's going to compose, she's going to write, and he's a composer for the piano without a piano at this stage. I mean, they seem to see Mallorca as quite kind of peasanty backwater. Very, very much so. We know of at least one piano, one decent instrument on the island, but apart from that, there's actually no record of, 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 of you know, a piano culture at that stage. And so it was probably fated that Chopin, while he was waiting for his piano to arrive from Paris, fated that he would you know, encounter this piano made by this craftsman. And, and so he says, OK, can I hire it? It's the, it's the only thing that I have. And it's worth remembering as well that Chopin composed at the piano. And so it was impossible for him to just sit down with you know, manuscript paper and write music. He actually needed the physical experience of playing something to work out in his mind what his ideas were. And that, that goes into something that runs through this whole book. He said that what's so fascinating about the music he composed on this piano, the preludes, which, or, or many of the preludes mm. seem to have been composed on this, and they, that he found a way of being 
improvisation, sort of putting improvisation down on paper, if that's the right way. Of- yeah, but definitely. This is, and, and it wasn't just in Mallorca that he worked this way, but we, we have from Georges Sand's account that he was a, a fantastic improviser. Well, we have that from many people's accounts in the 1840s. And, and, but what happened then to the music that he improvised is, is what caused him so much trouble. And as he set about putting down his improvised thoughts onto paper... And we have the instance of, of his friend uh, Delacroix, the painter, saying that sometimes that those thoughts weren't quite as inspired when it came to writing them down as they were in these very free-fall improvisations that he'd do. But it was quite a, a, a taxing process for him to turn these improvisations into written works. And that's what was so interesting about his time in Mallorca, is that he was improvising on clearly a not terribly um, sophisticated instrument, writing those improvisations down, working them out, and then turning them into the pieces that we know today, which I call you know, one of the great collections of miniatures from the, the 19th century century. Yes, you talk, you talk about you talk about tiny great monuments. Yes. <laughs> well, it's hard to, like some of them are 40 seconds long, so it's hard to, to say, well, this is one of the most you know, profound pieces of music written in the 19th century. Yet because they were so unusual, because they were without immediate precedent, you've got Chopin really breaking rules and, and the expectations of what he would be composing and should be composing in these decades. We describe Chopin as looking, I think you say somewhere, uniquely backwards to the 18th century for inspiration, and yet what he's writing is kind of anticipating the end of the 19th century. Yeah, that's completely right. In the 1830s and 40s, it's very unusual. There are a few instances, but it's very unusual that composers would sit, set out to write a collection of preludes because preludes meant something very different then. They, they were just meant to warm up the audience, if you like, warm up the, the pianist. The pianist was meant to give the impression that he was improvising them at the moment. So the idea of going and writing a collection of preludes in every one of the keys was, was completely foreign at that time. So looking back, because Bach, of course, did this in the, the well-tempered clavier, the, the 48 preludes and fugues that he wrote. Which is the only thing that yes, Chopin, that Chopin had, had with him on the island. That's right, he took that. And, and he, it was very unusual for a composer to venerate Bach in the 1830s. Um, that came later. And, of course, the big Bach revival is really a product of you know, the 1850s onwards. So uh, for Chopin to, be, to, be, to take that score with him to Mallorca is, is so strange, but it's clear that you know, he, he was thinking very much of uh, the preludes that he knew that he had to complete while he was there. Now, George Sand, who seems to have had a heroically bad rap for a very long time from enthusiasts of Chopin, from her contemporaries, I mean, you take a very warm view of her here. Yes, I do, because I had to go back and read her books and read some of her journalism, and and it's clear that she was a woman, you know, way ahead of her time um, in her values, in her artistic expression, in in the terms of the relationship that she was willing to have with Chopin. You know, they weren't married, but they lived together at various times. And what happened in, in the course of the second half of the, the 19th century is that as people became more proprietorial about Chopin, her relationship with him became an inconvenience. And that goes right into the 20th century when, when pianists like Courtauld, the, the, the great French pianist, who was very much seen as Chopin's you know, great exponent of, of his music, took a very, very grim view of, of Sand because he thought that she was a woman of you know, loose morals and, and wrote about her you know, quite despicable. So I was determined to get to know her better, um, read her stuff, and try to uh, put a, a better light and a more accurate light on that relationship. Yeah, and it's got, I mean, their parting was quite piercing. I mean, there's a whole sort of coda to their relationship, isn't there? That yeah, it was. They fell out basically over Sand not 
liking the uh, the fiance that her her daughter Solange had chosen, and in fact, some in some senses, Sant had um, stage managed. So they ultimately fell out over that, and um, and it was very sad. And she she was very nice about him in her her memoir, which was written about twenty years after Chopin died, fifteen years say. But at the time, it was this very sort of brittle and sudden end to a you know by that stage ten year relationship. And what was the? I mean, you've talked about you know the George Sand's reputation. Get up. I mean, how did people receive the Preludes at the time? Were they sceptical that these were? Important. Or oh, good, were, completely. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was either scepticism or incomprehension. And even someone as smart as uh, Schumann looked at the first publication in um, 1839 and just said, "I don't know what these pieces are." You know, I expected them to be something completely different. And uh, uh, but you know, they they reek of Chopin. You you can only have to listen to one bar and you know it's by that master. And list as well, because you're dealing with, uh, you know, a set of miniatures in the context when you know big is better, and people like list particularly were trying to make uh, great monuments, not tiny great monuments, but just huge pieces. And the piano was uh, the piano was getting deeper, more notes. You know, the the whole idea of uh, how you play a recital was changing. What used to be, you know, a number of artists coming together and giving just a few few pieces turned into the the, the single figure standing up there and playing for two hours or two and a half hours. So all of that was changing, and Chopin didn't really fit into it. And and so there was kind of lots of repositioning of him and the Preludes in the second half of the the 19th century. But at the time, people just yeah didn't know what to do with these funny small pieces. Yeah, and also there's a. It's an interesting line that when you, know, you were talking about the composition, the preludes that runs through, and I wonder maybe you, you could take to your keyboard to demonstrate with me, but sometimes people say, you know, this sounds like, I mean, the interpretations people have laid on the preludes, and what, one of them, the earliest ones, was George Sand, saying she comes in and it's raining, and she finds Chopin looking very depressed, and she says, oh, you know, there's raindrops in this, and he gets cross with her, doesn't he? Yes. We only have one instance of, of when Chopin said this was a direct sonic influence on my composition, and it's the, the 17th prelude in A-flat, where he talks about the chiming of a clock tower and that it chimes 11, and you can hear that in the writing when it... Um Etc. <laughs> um, so that's, that was him um, with his sense of humour saying this clock uh, strikes bombs, 11. Yeah. But the raindrop prelude, the so-called raindrop prelude, is when Sand goes down into Parma from Valdemossa where she attempts to get the French piano out of customs and um, there's a terrible storm and the trip home takes her seven hours to get back up to the monastery and she arrives back in the monastery and hears Chopin playing. And she, at that point, says to him, well, that's the, can't you hear the raindrops on the, on the monastery roof? That's what that repeated motive is throughout. And he gets very cross with her because he just says, you know, music is not just, you know, sonic representation. And, and he was right to do so because, and she conceded that later, that she said that what happens is these strange influences somehow get into his head and then he turns them into something, you know, completely and utterly transformed. That's something like the Eliot doctrine of the objective correlative, that the outside world 
is turned into something. That's right. And and he did have the idea of the outside world um, coming in, but he was also incredibly good at, at keeping the barriers up. And that's why he can live this strange 17th century life and 18th century life in some senses, um, you know, well into the 19th century. You know, your book seems, in some ways, I and mean, we'll move on to, because there's a whole lot more in it, but just to stay with Chopin for a moment, your book does a lot to try and excavate I think Chopin from from his admirers, you know, I mean, <laughs> rescue him from the... Because as you said, you know, Liszt was someone who obviously, you know, was pioneering this big, ballsy, Steinway-wanting kind of yes. music. Yep. Yep. And yet he's the, you know, initial keeper of the Chopin flame. And, you know, his interpretations and descendants kind of coloured how Chopin was interpreted, didn't they? Yeah, very much so. Uh, Liszt and his pupil and, and mentee, Anton Rubinstein were very much at the the vanguard of of the changing instrument as instruments got louder and um, larger and and of course the, the the music changed along with that and with this new culture so yes it's a hard thing to do and 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 of course now because we do have instruments that are so different from the ones that on which Chopin wrote and and that he preferred what are we meant to do are we meant to say well uh, okay we have to ignore the 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 capabilities and capacities of these new instruments and just play within the confines of what was possible on these old instruments or do we try and adapt what Chopin wrote for much bigger instruments for bigger halls for larger audiences i think it's somewhere in between the two a pianist that I love that did this best, I think, in the, the 1950s and 60s and 70s was Richter, Svatoslav Richter. And he had a, a way of somehow replicating what contemporary observers said of Chopin, that he always looked as though he was just grabbing an idea from nowhere and improvising on that. And in the course of the, the second half of the 19th century and the 20th, of course, we, we became jailed in by interpretation and by very standard interpretations of these work. And, and Richter was fantastic at just sort of saying, no, I want to get that spirit of Chopin's playing into my own. Richter did this beautiful recital in Tokyo in 1979 and he played a handful of the preludes. And one of them he played is the, the very simple waltz in A major, which Chopin wrote on Majorca on the, on the small Bowser instrument. And it's almost kind of so sort of self-consciously simple as if he's saying the instrument actually couldn't do more than this. But the way that Richter got the sense of Chopin's improvisation into it was by extending the waltz at each of the four bars. So you hear this. So he turns each of those last phrases into four beats instead of three. And that absolutely um, sets the audience, you know, they can't quite count. They don't really, it's yeah. really unsettling. And, um, and that's what uh, Richter did. So I think it is possible to marry both traditions. It is. I mean, obviously, as you say, say you know, the things were written in a particular time, in a particular way, on a particular instrument. But, you know, the audience's ears change as well. I mean, do you think if we were to hear Chopin now playing on that old Bowser or even on a play old piano, you know, of its era, it would just sound wrong. To yes, us. yeah, very much. And and even in the late 19th century, people were already starting to say that. And 
And of course, the Bowser instrument gets bought by the, the wonderful Polish harpsichordist Wanda Landowska. Well, she's um, the second half of your she's story, isn't exactly she? Exactly right. Yeah. But she, um, she writes very much about this and says in, in an article in about 1911 or so, where she just sort of talks about how Chopin played Chopin. And she just sort of says, look, if he were to be interred or disinterred from uh, Père Lachaise and come and play for us, uh, everyone would say, well, that's very lovely, but it's not the real Chopin. <laughs> it's not the true Chopin. So the tradition had moved, you know, substantially in the 50 years following his death. And that's why people like Landowska, like Rick, to, like thoughtful pianists today, try and um, rediscover some of those traditions and ideas. Well, it's very, I mean, the story of Landowska is where, you know, so, you know I said you're, you're attempting to rescue Chopin from his admirers. She kind of got started for you, didn't she? And it's interesting that, it, you know, it's a harpsichordist rather than, say, a pianist who's coming to Chopin. Why is that, do you think? Is it because the older instruments sort of Yes, very much the older, older instruments. So she, she was starting to collect instruments in the 1890s, the early 1900s. And so she was interested in, not, not just for historical reasons or for sentiment, but uh, learning how people thought about music, composed it and played it. And, and so she said that instruments, and they, they really do, they tell you an enormous amount about what composers intended, just because of uh, the limitations of them as much as their you know, capabilities. So she, though, was Polish at a time of great national uncertainty in terms of Poland's relationship with, uh, with Russia. She was also a grand pupil of Chopin, so her, you know, her teacher had studied with someone who, who'd studied with Chopin, so she thought that they, these traditions were very strong, and she, she'd studied very much as a pianist, you know, she was going to be you know, a late 19th century pianist, and then discovers the harpsichord in, in the 1890s in Berlin, and that changes her life. There's a lovely description of her first encounter with the harpsichord, it's not as promising as... It's not, yeah, it's not yeah, love at she, first sight, is it? <laughs> she says, yeah, it has this you know, shocking, resonating sound, and, you know, slightly twangy. And indeed, in, in, it was probably not in fighting condition because uh, people weren't playing them at that stage. So she discovers it in the, uh, the Berlin Museum. So, yeah, so there are all those, both, both those things, that, that idea that she's a Pole and that she's interested in what happened to Chopin's music because of her teacher, that when she encounters this piano in Majorca in 1911, she, she wants it straight away. It's amazing. This piano, the Bowser, you, you know, the, you describe at the beginning, made by this Maltese craftsman. It's still sitting there, seventy years later. Yes, it had been uh, so sound, out of tune a bit by now. Out, out of tune. Yeah. <laughs> sound and Chopin um, leave Majorca in a hurry in in February 1839, and the piano just remains there, and uh, it's pushed to one side and. And so she encounters it, yeah, in 1911 when she's on a concert tour and wants to buy it. And then two years later manages to buy it and um, ships it with her. To she more or less leaves a note, doesn't she, saying, right, they won't sell, but if they ever do, if they do you know, yeah, here's my number. Get, can I have it? And, and, and so two years later she gets it and, and she's photographed um, in Berlin in front of it. So that's why we know a fair bit about it, because these photographs are so beautiful and so detailed. And can you deduce sort of what what it was made of and how it would have sounded from the photograph? Uh, you, you, well, a bit. A bit. Yeah, you, you, we know the range of it. We know we know the notes that it didn't have. You know, that last, um, you know, the, all that those high notes at the top of modern pianos. Uh, we know its height, and so therefore you can you can work out some of the physics of how it's strung and things like that. So you can you can deduce a fair amount, but uh, we just don't know how how good it was. 
funnily enough, Landowska didn't talk about its sound. She was actually more interested in it as a kind of a relic and, and also just to work out how, how it influenced the, uh, the shape of the preludes. So we're relying a bit on Georges Sand's description of it, which is very unflattering at the time. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book, and I don't know whether there's a way of demonstrating this on the piano you've got at the moment, is you, say, you talk about equal temperament as being a thing that completely transformed how modern pianos sound as different. And can you explain what equal temperament means exactly in terms of you know, yes, of course. Black notes? Uh, yeah, it's it's strange that uh, equal temperament is is very much a, a concept of positivism, but it only sort of kicks in as a universal standard, if you like, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. And it was a way of dividing up a, a scale. So if you have an octave, um, if you if you how you divide all the notes changed uh, depending upon the type of temperament you thought was best. And so in Chopin's time, it was probably what was called mean tone temperament, which was basically certain keys ended up sounding better than other keys. And so if you had a key, if you had a, if you wrote a piece in a, in a key that used a lot of black notes, for instance, it could start to sound unstable. And so equal temperament changed all that because it meant that um, every key, regardless, um, was as stable as the next. So it meant that Chopin... Sorry, but by stable, do you mean a pure note or...? Yes, because equal temperament is actually artificial tuning. It's, it's actually kind of tweaking slightly the thirds of a scale so that they're actually slightly larger than they are meant to be in, according to pure physics. It's, it's just that the octave doesn't actually divide evenly into 12 separate notes. And, and that's, you see how this is disappointing for positivists. It's <laughs> incredibly disappointing. Um, and in fact, in some senses, the way people uh, dealt with it in the, in the previous centuries was uh, really uh, attractive. They just sort of went, OK, there, there are going to be some keys that just sound rank. And, um, <laughs> and I think that Chopin, like in, even in the middle of the, uh, the raindrop project, when it modulates, I think that Chopin is playing with the key that it modulates into um, sounds much less stable than the key that it, was, that it leaves. And so that would have, in effect, brought about this idea of the storm that, uh, that Georges Sand heard in, heard in the piece. So you can just imagine on this primitive instrument, um, in, now that it's modulated into this uh, black note key, that uh, it actually would have sounded murky and strange. So sort of unsettling. Unsettling, and it's meant to. It's meant to sound really unsettling. And today, on, on these beautiful instruments, we have to kind of get that mood of unsettlement in other ways. And how would you do that with the tempo or the... I'd do, pedals, in, or I'd, I'd do it with just with uh, with voice with voicing actually. So hearing the, uh, the the melody switch, you know. But yeah, it's it's not inherently unstable as it would have been in using tone temperament. So in a sense, you're you're saying you know, imagining effects Chopin's coming up with that are completely dependent upon the instrument he's got. And this instrument, now we've, it's found its way to Vanda. Yes. And then it all gets a bit murkier from there on in. You know? It gets much murkier. And Nazis stage left. <laughs> there are always Nazis stage left. Um, she, moves, she moves to Paris after the, war, after the First World War. 
And, and in 1940, when the Nazis march into Paris, she escapes only with days to spare because she had Jewish parents. And even though she had French nationality and she was very eminent, she wisely thought, that may not protect me. And then, of course, the Nazis uh, know she about She escapes the, the States, doesn't she? Um, yes, she does. But well, she, she lives she, she spends, initially and then three. Yeah, she spends a year in the south of France and Lisbon and then escapes to uh, the States. And the Nazis uh, know about the piano and they, they, they know about the Chopin piano. And this actually, funnily enough, is the most valuable of the instruments as far as they're concerned because they think that when the war is done and they win, that they'll be the guardians of the high culture that they're, they're protecting and that, uh, that Chopin belongs to them far more than to Poland or to France. And uh, so they want this uh, Chopin piano and they, they find it and source it. And then, of course, in, in true Nazi style, they catalogue every detail of the collection that they take from her. And the piano goes then to, uh, to Berlin. It goes to Leipzig when the bombing of Berlin becomes too intense. It goes to a monastery in Reitenhaslach when the bombing of Leipzig is about to commence. But gloriously as well, it survives. It survives in this monastery and after the war is restituted to uh, Landowska's place. It's discovered by the monuments men, the so-called monuments men. And, George uh, Clooney. George time. Clooney was there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, because we don't know much about this. We know all about the art and we know about the sculptures, but we don't know that they actually also were sourcing some very, very valuable and, and in this case sort of um, iconic, if less, less valuable in terms of money. And so, yeah, they, they managed to find it and return it. But Landowska remains in the States. She decided that she was either too old or, or life was actually working out for her in America. And, and so she's not reunited with the, the piano ever. Which is why, of course, in the closing chapters of your book, you mount as you describe yourself as sort of Ahab after the white whale-style quest to find the Bowser. And, of course, I don't want to introduce spoilers unusually it's a non-fiction <laughs> book um we'll have to end it there paul would you play us out with a bit of chopin please sure And you've been listening to the Spectator Books podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please do rate, review and subscribe to us on Amazon or iTunes or whichever your podcast provider is. And you'll find much more to enjoy, I hope, in this week's Spectator Books section.